Hello and welcome to Fireside with the VC. My name is Andrew Romans and we are blessed today to have Jeff Epstein from Bessemer Venture Partners on the podcast. Jeff was CFO of a number of publicly traded companies before joining Bessemer, one that you should have heard of, um, DoubleClick, which was, I believe, Jeff, wasn't that the biggest acquisition in Google's history at the time? 3.1 billion, is that right? It, it was. Mm -hmm. Um, you were then working with, I guess, Larry Ellison at Oracle as chief financial officer of what I think of as the SaaS company of all SaaS companies, 150 billion at last time I looked, very profitable. Um, well, they're, they're increasingly a SaaS company, of course, for 30 years, they were an on-premise software company, the largest enterprise software company in the world, the most popular database. And Safra Katz, who was my boss at Oracle, is now the CEO of Oracle, uh, is a tremendous leader. So I worked with Safra and Larry. That's great. You know, to show how old I am, I once keyed into my closet when I was running my startup, ripped a CPU out of my $50,000 I paid for at SunSpark to lower my Oracle bill. So, uh, you know, that just shows you how much more capital efficient companies can be you know, in today's world. But here's a topic I want to get in with, with you and everybody today, which is how many financings should a startup go through when they're accessing the venture capital machine that includes Bessemer and our fund and others, you know, to kind of walk through pre-seed, seed, late stage seed, demo day, seed extension, A, B, C, D, E, and what do they need to show a VC in order to get a series A? What should they be showing at these different levels? And the metrics will be different for consumer, SaaS, enterprise, mobile. Um, I think of you as a world expert, you know, you know, on this kind of stuff. But before we get started, just to orient people, DoorDash, I think is one of your deals. How many financings did DoorDash go through before getting into an IPO? Uh, DoorDash is actually uh, one we missed. We have an okay. anti-portfolio at Bessemer. Uh, and I had a chance to, to meet DoorDash at Y Combinator and, uh, was very early on, but they didn't let me in as an angel in the very first round. My friend, Mar Hershenson at Pair Ventures is an investor and uh, she was been very early on from the, the whole, you know, the entire life cycle. So uh, that's a great example. Uh, DoorDash has probably done eight or 10 financings from its pre-seed to its, uh, to its uh, IPO. And the first round was in 2013 when they had their, just, Hand, a few, probably hundreds of dollars or a few thousand dollars of revenue, they raised $120,000 at 2 million pre. And then later that year, they raised 2.4 million seed. A year later, a 17 million Series A. A year after that, a 40 million Series B. A year after that, 127 million. Then they skipped a year, raised 500 million Series D. Uh, again, raised that year. So pretty much every year from 2013 to 2020, they raised another round and every round was a higher valuation. One, there was one period where they, they had a, essentially a flat valuation uh, when they were struggling. Uh, and now of course they're worth tens of billions of dollars to public company. So the, the, the two questions that you asked, one was when should you raise money? And the other is how much should you raise? Uh, the when question in my mind is, uh, you don't want to raise more, more than once a year because then you're just constantly fundraising and you're not focused on your business. And you probably don't want to raise, if you're, if you're consuming capital as most startups are, you probably don't want to raise money now if you're not going to spend it for the next two years. 
-hmm. because if you're going to raise money now and spend it three years from now, the chances are three years from now, you'll be worth more. So why not wait and raise money later? So you basically want to raise a year or two years worth of money every time you raise money. And you want to raise more if the market is great and the valuations are high and you're doing well, you want to raise less if the valuations are lower, the market's a little lower uh, because you're going to get a higher valuation later. So somewhere between one and two years worth of money every time you raise money. And just just on that topic before moving on, how do you think about runway? So runway meaning you've got monthly expenses are here, burn rate is there, you bring in capital, you've got an operating plan. How many months of runway do you have before the bank balance could potentially hit zero? Well, I think the classic answer to that is the day you close in your financing, you should have uh, 18 to 30 months of runway. And the idea is that a finance, your next financing will probably take six months from the day you start to the day you close. So if you close today and you have 18 months of runway, that means a year from now you need to start your next financing. Right. So it gives you a year without raising money, so a year you can focus on your business. If you have less than 18 months, you have to start raising money nine months from now or six months from now, you don't have time to run your business. So I, I, would, I would advocate a minimum of 18 months and then a maximum of 30 months, because if you raise more than that, that means you're, you're raising money now for today's valuation, but you could be raising money at a future valuation. Okay. And so um, with, with, why don't we start at the beginning when, what should startups be seeking to demonstrate when trying to raise that first outside capital? So I guess let's talk about pre-seed, um, you know, from an angel perspective or an institutional seed investor. There's no specific answer. There's more trends and, and generality. So I would say generally what you want to do whenever you raise a round, it will, let, me, let me take a step back. Why does venture capital work? Venture capital works because it's a gated capital. Uh, the, the example of this is DoorDash, which raised money every year and every year they did well and they proved to investors that they were growing and they were having better product market fit, and better go to market and they were worth more. The, the opposite of gated capital is what Quibi did. Quibi, you may remember, was the company started by Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman last couple of years ago that raised a billion dollars mm. and spent it to do quick bites. That's what Quibi was. It was short form video for mobile phones. And they raised money. They raised a billion seven before they, before they had their first revenue. And then six months later, they shut the company down. And they lost over a billion dollars. So that's the, that's the opposite of venture capital. That's right. just give me a lot of money. I'm going to spend it all and hope it works. Venture capital is give me a little money. In the next year, I'm going to prove something. And then next year, you'll give me more because I'll go through the gate and then I'll prove something else and I'll go through the next gate. And every year there's another gate or every year or two, there's another gate that I go through. And the reason that has worked and it's worked now for 50 years in Silicon Valley is you're not spending a billion dollars all at once. You're spending a small amount of money to prove something and then spending a little more to prove something else. And every step of the way, if you don't prove it, you won't, you won't be able to raise your next round. Right. At that point, if you can't raise your next round, you have to get to break even or shut the company down. I think drug discovery biotech is almost a hyperbole example to pass this logic on of saying, if, if phase one trials are on animals like rats and it kills all the animals, why would you test it on a subset of humans? Why would you test it against the, you're not going to pay, you're not going to put the money in now for phase four clinical trials, 
when we could be dead in the water with an A-B test on phase one. You know, you know, of course, you can argue about the team, the market, some core tech and pivoting, you know, in a world of pivots. But even then, that is adhering to the kind of biotech logic of pivot and show me some metrics. So I want to get into some metrics. So what do you think? Sometimes uh, some companies hardware related may need more capital. So every person's unique, every startup is unique, but we're going to be generalizing here and not worry about, uh, you know, too much uniqueness. If you raise too much money at the seed, the, you may get diluted a lot and you've got you know, what I often think of as dead weight in the cap table when if you're going to a, a Bessemer for a Series A and they think this could have another eight financings before a multi-billion dollar IPO, you don't want to delete, delete yourself too much, but yet you want to be attractive. So what's a suitable amount of capital to raise at a early seed round you know, before you go into an A? Well, for software companies, before this year, this year is pretty extraordinary. People are raising a lot of money at, at high valuations. But the classic would be, uh, how much money do you need for the next year or two to okay. run your little software company with a handful of engineers who are building a product and you don't really need anything else? And it's typically a few hundred thousand dollars for your pre-seed and maybe a million to two million for your seed. Uh, and the idea is, can you raise enough money to get to the next gate? So the question is, what is the next gate? So when you're, if you start with just an idea, the, the next gate is, can I build a prototype of my product that I could put in the hands of customers and they can start using? So I can see the customers say, I, I'm giving you the product for free, but it's, I don't really find any value from it. So I'm not even going to use it. You know, that, that would be a, a that, that's the equivalent of your, the animals dying in your example. Right. Uh, or customers love it. They're using it every day. And they tell me, you know, this is great. I'm, you know, I'm a, I, everyone has to make money. So actually, I'm, even though I'm getting it for free, I'm happy to pay you a fair price because I'm getting a lot of value. So that would be terrific uh, proof of product market fit. In a B2B software context, my definition of product market fit is, do you have 10 paying referenceable customers? Okay. Because if you don't, then I'm taking a lot of risk as an investor. Who knows whether it's going to work? Once you have 10 paying referenceable customers, and I as an investor would literally call up all your customers and say, you know, tell me what you use it for. What do you use to use? Why do you use it? Are you in it every day or every week? Uh, what's the value you're getting from it? How much you're paying for it? How much you're willing to pay for it? And it, 10 is a, a broad enough sample that it's, they're probably not all your college roommates. They're probably yeah. in different sectors, different sizes, different geographies. And if you have 10, I think you can probably get 11. If you have 11, I think you can get 12. So you've, you've proven product market fit. Now that's just a, my own personal rule of thumb, other people have different definitions of, you could if you Google product market fit, you'll see lots of different definitions. And it's different for consumer. You need a lot more customers for consumer free or consumer paid than B2B. Then once you've gone through the gate of product market fit, then you could probably raise your series B round. Uh, and then you're saying, okay, I, now I, I have a product that works. Now I wanna scale it up and get a lot of customers. Right. And so now you're going to, if you're a consumer, you're going to spend money on marketing. If you're B2B, you're going to hire salespeople and spend money on sales. And then the question is, do I have a repeatable sales or marketing process where I know if I spend a dollar on sales and marketing, I'm going to get a dollar back or get 50 cents a year back. So I get a two-year payback. And the key metric we look for there for B2B is a payback of a customer acquisition cost payback of two years or less, meaning if I spend a dollar, we want you to get at least 50 cents back in profit this year, 
meaning you've broken even in two years and in the third year, you're making money if you get a customer to renew. Okay, okay. Getting that CAC to LTV is important. I think when, when we look at early SaaS companies, sometimes even getting four, four enterprise customers that are paying money, but are even driving functional requirements. Sometimes you might even see one of these companies co-invested with us or is in the round or invested before us. But sometimes I think when you're still at that Bunsen burner science experiment stage, trying not to go for a lot of logos and going, you know, a bit closer on a few, they can even help the startup figure out, you know, what they should be doing, what the product should be doing, prioritizing, you know, release on, on functionality and things like that. But so for you, 10, 10 enterprise customers could be enough to go for a series A round. Well, uh, Typically, that would well. The, the definitions are changing. I would say very blurred it used lines. to be Series B. Now uh, it used to be Series A. Now it's probably seed. I mean, it's, it's just it's getting the the rounds are all getting bigger and uh, and if you're getting great inflation essentially in the rounds. What used to be a, a Series B is now a Series A. What used to be a Series A is now a seed. But right. the, the the point is, have you the, the key? Forget about what they call it. The question is. Have you proven product market fit? Okay. And some investors are comfortable investing very early before there's a product. Other customers want to see a product demo, even if you don't have paying customers and you don't have product market fit. Other investors say, no, I want to see product market fit. I want to see paying referenceable customers. And then there are still other customers that say, no, I, I want to take even less risk. I'm willing to pay more. I want to see that you have a repeatable sales process. So typically that's those gates that I just described First, you've built the product. Then you've built the product and have customers using it, paying for it and are referenceable. Then you have customers that, that, and you'd be able to sell it and you have multiple salespeople selling it and making quota. Each of those levels, you, you get more higher and higher valuations and lower and lower risk for the investor. Sure, sure. And what do you think are, you know, even when you're looking at friends of yours or companies you're actively involved with economically, what do you think are, uh, as you get bigger and you're breaking out of your seed, late seed demo days and heading into more of a, uh, we have a repeatable sales cycle, we have plenty of customers, we're landing and expanding. What's a, how much, what are the key metrics with revenue and other than revenue? And feel free to break it down a little bit of a consumer. You might want to see more people using it every other day. Essentially dogs are eating the dog food, but on the enterprise side first, what kind of revenue marks or other key metrics are you looking for when a company is say raising 5 million plus? So if that's a big seed or if it's an A these days. Well, I, I think the, the milestones are typically a million dollars of annual recurring revenue. You sort of get into a new level where it's, it's, these are arbitrary. So it's really in the minds of the investors there's a group of investors that won't invest if you have less than a million dollars of ARR because they just mm -hmm. say it's still too speculative. There are other people who say, once you've gotten to a million of ARR, we think you've, you've reached some sort of key threshold. We think that the risk of you going out of business is a lot lower. You clearly have a number of customers who were paying for it. At that point, you might have, if you're selling something for $50,000, you know, you might have 20 customers. The next metric would probably be about $5 million of ARR where now you're pretty established, but you have several salespeople, the salespeople are making quota. So you have, a, a, at that point, you probably have a repeatable sales process. 
you might be growing 100 or 200% a year, but losing a lot of money. Losing a lot of money typically doesn't bother venture investors. In fact, they like that because the venture investors bring capital. So if you're losing a lot of money, you need more capital, you need the venture investors more. If you break even, maybe you, maybe you don't need the venture. <laughs> it's hard investors. to negotiate. <laughs> right. So uh, what we love to see as a venture firm is a company that has a million to five million of annual revenue, has referenceable customers, has salespeople making quota, is growing, is doubling or tripling this year and is losing a lot of money. Then we can write a big check, we can help you grow, but you've already proved, you've taken a lot of the risk out because you've proven customers like it, you've proven you can sell it. And it's just a question really of how quickly can you grow and, and how big is the market. And hopefully with that CAC to LTV payback period, you're able to see a path to profitability, even if they're aggressively growing the business as a loss. Yeah, the, the metric that I focus on is not CAC to LTV, which stands for lifetime value. It's CAC payback, meaning- and CAC it, meaning cost of acquiring a customer. If you're a good software company, you'll have a net renewal rate above 100%. Meaning if you start with 10 customers this year, a year from now, maybe you'll lose a customer, but the nine who are left are going to buy more. So you'll actually have higher revenue next year than this year with no new customers, meaning you'll have a net renewal rate above 100%. And so in that case, you have a life, an infinite lifetime value, right? Because your, your revenue is actually growing over time with no new customers. You only have a limited lifetime value if you're losing, if you, if you sign up hundred customers this year and next year, you only have $90 of revenue and the year after that $80 of revenue, then you have sort of a 10 year lifetime value. So the best customers, you know, Oracle today, 40 years after its founding, I'm sure has customers who work customers 30, 40 years ago. So essentially a very, very long lifetime values. The key metric is CAC payback. So if I spend a dollar of sales on sales and marketing, how much gross profit do I get in the next 12 months? Do I get a year's worth in which case I have a one-year payback or does it take me two years to earn it back or only six months to earn it back? And what we like to see at Bessemer is a CAC payback of two years or less, meaning I'm earning my sales and marketing back in less than two years. Right. I think of one of the metrics for SaaS companies is you've got, you know, revenue. That's obvious. Everyone understands that growth, but there's also number of customers and are you growing the average contract value? So the amount of money you can get out of that customer in a year, often these companies, as they grow, they're adding more engineers. The engineers get something done, move on to the next product extension if they're able to synchronize into more data sets and offer more value, maybe save more money, make more money for their customer, it's worth it for the customer to start off paying 2000 a month and or 2000 even a year and then double that and double that. So that's kind of one of the one of the SaaS one of the SaaS metrics that you know we pay attention to. Um, okay, and what um, if you were to list a couple of the metrics you look for on the SaaS you know, so enterprise software companies, obviously revenue growth is key. Number of customers key. What are, you know, uh, CAC to payback? That was a key one. What other, what other things come to mind? Like even churn well, levels or. Yeah, the gross churn and net churn. So if you start with 10 customers a year later, how many are still customers? And then how much are they paying relative to how much they were paying before? So the example I gave where you lose one customer your gross churn is 90% or it's 10% churn, 90% renewal, gross renewal rate. But if those nine are each buying 30% more, you might have 
120% net renewal rate. So we want to see a net renewal rate above 100%. And we want to see a gross renewal rate probably above, ideally above 90%, where not too many people are canceling. Uh, then we also want to see product market. If it's an early stage company, you can do a survey about product market fit. There's a famous survey about would, how disappointed would you be if we took away this product and you want to see, see 40% or more say they were very disappointed. Uh, if the company has been around a lot and you have enough customers, you could do a net promoter score survey and saying on a scale of zero to 10, how likely are you to recommend this to a friend? So the net renewal rate is probably the most important, but uh, product market fit and the promoter score are sort of surrogates for figuring out customer satisfaction. If you have salespeople, you wanna see, are most of your salespeople making quota? And mm -hmm. how, what's the ramp rate? How long does it take to get? How many salespeople are staying versus you have churn in your sales force? If you're a marketing company, you wanna see what's your ROI on your marketing uh, what are your channels of, of marketing distribution? Are you mostly marketing through Facebook or Instagram? Are you mar mostly marketing through Google search or Google display? How big is the market? If you're, if you're advertising in a certain unique set of keywords, but you're already buying all the keywords there are, and there's, aren't, there's not enough traffic. What you look at is look at the keywords that you're buying on Google and say, how many people are searching for those things? If only a few people are searching for them, you might have maxed out your, you might have great ROI on your Google ad, AdWords, but you bought all the AdWords there are for your particular unique niche and you can't, you can't scale it. So then how are you going to get new customers if you can't do it through Google? You have to come up with new ways of advertising. So in, in anything that has a marketing component, the marketing channel metrics are very important. Yeah. And with with for entrepreneurs going through all these financings, you know, DoorDash doing nine, 10 financings before an initial public offering, what are what is dilution expectations on both sides here? So if investors are investing five million dollars, call that a late seed or small A these days, how much how much should the company be selling in these different financing rounds? Most uh, of the leading venture firms have ownership guidelines. So if you're a partner at a firm like Bessemer, you'll probably be sitting on eight or nine or 10 boards of directors, and you can't be on 20 boards of directors. So you're only going to make 10 investments over the course of 10 years. So every year you're making one or two new investments. And you want to start with, let's say, 25% ownership of the company so that you have a board seat and you have a meaningful ownership as opposed to just having 5% of the company. So that's the classic venture capital model that many of the leading firms adopt. And then you could just do the math. If you're raising 5 million and Bessemer wants to own 25% of fully diluted, then the pre-money is going to be 20 million. Because uh, then the, you'd have five out of, actually it'd be 15 million because you'd have five out of 20 million. It may be, you could go down to 20% or 18%, but uh, typically they'd want a meaningful ownership position in a board seat. Right. That's, that's the classic. Yeah, I mean, in problem. ancient times of the 90s, when I was first raising funding for myself, you just double the size of the round to get the pre-money. We're raising five on 10. That's 33% dilution. I think as time has gone by, companies tend to want to sell closer to 20% in a single financing round. And then you have the dynamic of, well, I've got Bessemer and Sequoia. Both want to support us. Maybe we can cut it in half and these ownership target percentages of owning at least 20%, which I hear most commonly are 25. Um, you know, I guess it's good for you guys to get a big ownership chunk early and then maybe pro rata your way and double down as they get lower risk to 
you know, maintain or grow into that. Yeah, it would be rare for five or 10 million early stage financing to have two lead venture investors. Typically the CEO says, why complicate life? I'm just gonna pick one of them that I like better that either gives me the higher valuation or I think is higher value added for your series A, let's say. And then a year or two later, when you do a series B, you'd go back to the other one and say, look, I'd like you to lead the series B to set the price because my insider doesn't, isn't objective anymore. So I want an independent person to pay a market price, which I hope is going to be a very high price as opposed to the insider, which might give me a low price. Uh, and then the insider typically will match and say, I'll, I'll buy my pro rata. Uh, mm. So the new investors coming in, setting a high price and the, your earlier investor is matching that price and, and investing its pro rata share. Yeah. I, I think that's, that that's standard. If the existing investor is setting the price, they could be marking up ahead of their even their own fundraise, and it's good to have that impartial guy who said, "I'm willing to trade cash for this good at this price," you know, to validate that. Um, so, what are you seeing is changing in 2021? I mean, we've seen some of our portfolio companies raise pretty big financing rounds in the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, when their revenues maybe even a year ago, might not have justified such a big check. What, what, what's shifting? Maybe where were we two years ago? Where, where's the market right now on uh, what is changing? Well, all markets, whether they're venture capital markets or private equity markets or the public stock markets go through cycles. We are at the best of times part of the venture capital cycle now. It's just most venture firms have made a lot of money in the investments they've made over the last five or 10 years. Money is pouring into their funds and, and, the, invest, and the funds have to invest it. And then you have new entrants like uh, crossover funds that typically invest in public markets that have been investing in, in late stage venture. Uh, and you have family offices and individuals and angels investing. So it's, very, it's the easiest time to raise money at high valuations that it's probably ever been in the history of of venture capital. Uh, and so if you have a great idea, today is a great time to raise money. Now it's not going to last forever. You know, it's what's going to happen is some of these companies are not going to make it. Some of the companies are going to raise money at high valuations. And ultimately, even though the company does okay, the investors lose money because they invested at too high a price. And then there'll be some correction. But, but right now it's a, it's a great time to raise money. And, and what are your expectations as a venture capitalist on how much you think you can make. So if you're investing in a company with a $25 million pre-money valuation and you're putting in whatever number of dollars, what are you seeking to make on, on that investment? Like classic, kind of like late stage looking for maybe 4X, early stage looking for something much bigger. Well, at, at a venture fund, uh, the classic venture fund is, is looking for a 3X rate of return on average across the portfolio. And at a firm like Bessemer, uh, we typically are taking a lot of risk early stage. So a third of our investments, we lose all our money. Okay. And a third, we get, about get our money back. And a third, we make a lot of money. And so we need to make 10X or more on the winners to compensate for the ones where we lose all our money. In private equity, I, I was in, a friend of mine was at a private equity firm that's 30 years old, very successful. They've made hundreds of investments. They've never lost all their money on any deal. Right. Okay. They have a hundred percent rate of, in fact, I think they probably have not lost their capital on very few deals. They probably have over 90% of their deals probably at least make their money back and they, they have a three X return in their fund. So, so they're trying to make 
between a 1x and a 5x return, we're trying to make between a 0x and a 100x return. So we end up all making a 3x return if we do well, maybe a little better in a time like this where everyone's doing better, but we have a lot more variability. Okay, that makes sense. And when, as we move into some of the later stage, it used to be when you were CFO of numerous companies, the, the market capitalization was possibly lower than the pre-money valuation of what still seems to be in the venture capital ecosystem with these crossover big funds like Tiger Global coming down. Um, when a company wants to be raising money at a billion dollar full-blown unicorn valuation, what do you think the market wants to see? What kind of traction should these different kind of companies have when they're hitting that billion dollar valuation? Well, all of the investors are looking for the same thing, which is they'll typically uh, map out the next three to five years of growth. And they'll say, look, if you're growing 100% a year, even if you only have 30 million of revenue now, if you're growing 100% a year, and we think you can, can keep that up, pretty quickly you get to a big number. So you grow from 30 to 60 to 120 to 240. And if you have 240 million of revenue and you're still growing, maybe not 100% a year at that point, but 50% a year, you're probably worth you know, many billions of dollars. So if you know, five to $10 billion, 20, 20 plus times revenue. So you can just look at the public companies, look at their growth rate, their profit margin and say, you know, the range of valuations are something like maybe six times revenue for a slow growth company like Oracle to 30 or 40 times revenue for a high growth company like Zoom. And uh, you can see where you fit in that comparable. And then you'd say, well, okay, well, if I'm private today, but in five years, I'll be public. And in five years, I'll be this kind of revenue and this kind of growth rate. I'll be at, will I be at Oracle's multiple or will I be at Zoom's multiple or somewhere in between? You just count that back. And that's how you come up with the billion dollar valuation for a company with 35 million of revenue today. Sure, sure. So, and, and what, what do you think are minimum revenue valuations for a high growth SaaS company? On, on getting to a billion dollar valuation while private? Well, I would say that uh, depending on the growth rate, companies are being valued anywhere from 10 times revenue to 30 times revenue and some, some high growth companies even more. I mean, if you're growing more than 100% a year, it's, it's, they're not looking at today's revenue, they're looking at your revenue two or three years out. Sure, sure. And if you were doing the Jeff Epstein playbook of this is how much you should be doubling or, or multiplying revenue in the early years of like, you've got your 10 customers, you've got 100K MRR, so you're at like 1.2 growing to 500K MRR, which will move you from one investor set to another that will be willing to support you, like you said in the beginning of our talk today. How much should they be doubling more than 2Xing? Does that throttle up and throttle down? I think, I think I've heard you talk about that before. Think about it from the investor's point of view. Investors have a time, venture investors have a fund life of seven to 10 years. So when we make an investment, we want to be able to either sell the company or take the company public and cash out in, in that seven to 10 year period. So, and we want the company to be worth more than a billion dollars. So roughly, let's say it has 100 million of annual revenue at that point when we're exiting. So how do you get from zero revenue today to 100 million revenue in seven to 10 years? And the answer is there's two phases. The first phase is you, you struggle a little bit, you get your first customers, and it takes you a few years to get from zero to 2 million of revenue, let's say. Once you get to 2 million of revenue, you've got product market fit, you've got a repeatable sales process, you should be growing very fast. 
So the there's a, a, a series of articles out on the internet, you can look it up called triple, triple, double, double, double. Right. So from 2 million, you want to go from two to six in one year, then six to 18. So you've tripled the, every year for two years and then double to from 18 to 36 to 72 to 144. Then you've gone from 2 million to 144 in five years. Mm-hmm. And you've gone from zero to 144 in about eight years. So that's that's best case. And there are a lot of companies like Slack and uh, and others that have done that. Uh, we've, we've been fortunate at Bessemer to have a number of those as well. Uh, so if that's if if that's what venture investors always want to see in a perfect world, and they're willing to pay a lot for it if they think you're you're on that track. Now, of course, out of 100 venture-backed companies, only you know one or two are going to have those kind of metrics. But still, if you're at two million of revenue, you should be growing at least 50%, probably 100% at that point, even if you're losing money. The trade-off of growth versus profitability, what we all want to see is we want to see the growth. The growth proves that you have a product people want, proves you have a way of getting that product into customers' hands. The fact that you're losing money isn't a problem because we have money. So that's the whole point is we want to give you money for you to invest in your product, invest in your go-to-market so that you can get get big within a five to seven year period and get over a hundred million revenue. And what should founders, uh, we talked about the venture capitalist ownership target percentages of 25%. And if I'm doing a deal a year and I'm on 10 boards, what, what's the expectation of entrepreneurs to what's their ownership at the time of say, M&A can happen anytime. So maybe easier to have this discussion around an IPO. If you do an IPO on a big boy exchange on the NASDAQ, what percentage should management have going into that? Let's go to one class of common shares event. Well, I think uh, the the most dilution some investors get if they raise a lot of money uh, every year and they, they they continue to lose money, so they keep, have to keep on raising money. The fa- let's say there's two co-founders, they might be down to five percent each yeah. uh, when they, by the time they go public. Uh, the opposite of that is a company like Shutterstock, where I served on the board for many years. And John Oranger was the first employee, didn't have a co-founder. He, he, he was an engineer. He built the product. He went out and he marketed the product. It's a marketplace for images. He went out and personally took 100,000 photographs. So he basically did everything himself before he started any employees, and he generated revenue really early on. So he never raised venture capital. Right. And he finally raised a, a, pri- a private round from Insight, which was all secondary, to take, take money out. So the company today is worth three and a half billion dollars, and he personally still owns half the company. Sure. So uh, you know that's sort of the best case. I mean, that's and, the you know when you talked about a, a CAC to payback period, some companies just really really work on on unit economics. I remember um, MoneySupermarket.com in London was you know putting out putting out ads saying we can save you money on your auto insurance if you change, and a million other things, and then they have the money they spent on that ad. And when they switch you over to a different service provider, they get a lot more back. And it was happening not in under two years, it was happening in the same, you know, cash period. So that the founders owned 82% when they listed, you know, on the LSE. So I mean, that's an example of those really great unit um, economics can carry you. So I want to close out on, on secondaries. So what are your feelings about secondary? Secondaries have evolved quite a bit. It used to be in ancient times, oh, if Bill Gates is selling shares in Microsoft, we should all dump our Microsoft shares. And it's like a run on the bank because he knows more than we do. Then we kind of had dot-com meltdown, 2001, Sarbanes-Oxley, stay private forever. There's only so long these funds can stay open for. you know. Um, 
and the secondary markets kind of evolved. What are your thoughts about that? And what do you see happening? And when, when are founders beginning to, to see personal liquidity in these financing rounds or in between? There's a balance. As an investor, you want the founder to be focused on their business and you want them, you don't want them to take month-long vacations to the Caribbean because they've made millions of dollars and are sailing around on yachts and not care about the business. You want them to be working pretty hard. On the other hand, you don't want them to be uh, worried about money because then that, that's dysfunctional too. If, if the founder is married and has kids and has a family, they, they, they probably you know, they might wanna buy a house. They might wanna send their kids to a good school. And so uh, what has happened now is most investors are certainly open and, and, e and eager to let founders take out some percentage of their ownership. The, the venture investors are diversified. We, we all have lots of investments and we have, uh, uh, and, and we have live in nice houses and we have, uh, no, we're not risking our entire net worth on one company. If you're the founder and 100% of your net worth is in illiquid stock in one company and you can't afford to you know, live in a nice place and, and, uh, and, and take a nice vacation once a year, uh, I think you're, you know, you're not having a balanced life. So I think it makes sense to say, let's say sell 10% of your ownership is certainly reasonable. Get some cash out, have some diversification, uh, as long as most of your wealth is still in the company and you're still working pretty hard at the company is, is the right balance. And that can, that can serve to align interest too, that uh, if the founder were not able to do any kind of secondary, they're trying to keep burn rates low, so the kids are not skiing or going to a good school, um, it, they might be keen to push for the first offer to sell the company in an M&A where, you know, a venture fund like yours that's been around for over 100 years is thinking, well, we'd, we'd rather wait a bit longer, raise more money, soldier on a bit more and get to that multi-billion dollar listing exit. So, you know, sometimes it can be it can be aligning. So, Jeff, what what is the criteria these days for Bessemer? I'm sure if you know relationships exist you guys might be investing earlier but when is typically a first entry point that one would see where bessemer is going to invest in a startup on the early side bessemer has evolved over the last several years we now invest at every stage so we'll write hundred thousand dollar seed checks into companies with pre-product and we'll write hundred million dollar late stage checks into companies just before they're going public or even buy stock in a company at the ipo uh, and we have 20 investing partners. Each of them have, we, we invest according to roadmaps. So each of our investors have two or three areas that they focus on, whether it's cloud software or consumer or healthcare or cybersecurity or drones or space or, or batteries, whatever the category is. So if you have a company that is looking for venture capital, uh, feel free to email me, jeff at bvp.com, and I'll get you to the right partner. Uh, and then that partner would take a look at it and the partner will, will want to be the lead investor on about 10 deals over at, at any one point in time. So every year they'll be selling a company or taking company public and making one or two new investments, but they'll also be making a handful of earlier stage investments as well in seeds because they want to get a look at, if, if we invest in a seed, we want to get first look at the series A. So that's, that's the main reason we invest in seed. Okay. And, and what does operating partner mean at Bessemer? I mean, as an operating partner, what is your function role? I'm sure everyone does a bit of everything, but how would you describe that? Well, investing partners write checks. They have the authority to make decisions and commit capital. I don't. So I'm an operating partner, not an investing partner. I get involved after Bessemer Invests 
And then I help the CEO and the CFO of their company build the business. And the way we think about it is typically the founders of the company are product people or engineers and they build the product. Sometimes a co-founder is also a go-to-market person as sales or marketing expert. And initially you have one product and the company is the product. And then over time, what you're doing is you're not only building the product, but you're building the company that builds the product because you need to hire more people. You need to expand from your first product to your second product. You might want to expand from one market segment to another market segment or from the US to international. And my experience as a CFO over 25 years is building the company. So what I and my colleagues at Bessemer and our operating group do is we help, in addition to providing capital, in addition to the board member who's the investor sitting on the board and helping the company, our operating group helps the company build, build the, the infrastructure of the company and processing systems to, to grow from this million dollars or $5 million revenue level to $100 million of revenue and more. That's what I like to hear. Building companies one brick at a time and with your network and background, they're lucky to they're lucky to get you in their circles. So what closing question, what's the one thing you would you would throw out to entrepreneurs as advice or something to keep their eyes on in 2021? Well, uh, Paul Graham has said it best, the founder of Y Combinator. If you're a very early stage company and you're pre-product market fit, there's only two things you need to do. One is make products and services people want. <laughs> and then the number two is grow that venture back companies are all about growth. So first you have to make something people want. And then once you have it, you have to figure out, well, how do I get more of those people? And you, you can start very small. You know, Airbnb started renting out airbeds uh, to, to people in their apartment. It, they didn't start you know, renting out vacation homes in Hawaii. And of course they evolved into that. And uh, you know, Uber started with black car service, not with every cars and, uh, and companies like, uh, uh, DoorDash started with the founders personally driving, uh, going to restaurants. They didn't sign up restaurants. They went to a restaurant and said, I'm going to buy some food. And then they just drove it to someone's house. The restaurant didn't even know they were a delivery service. They just thought they were guys coming in getting takeout. So you could start with a very simple product, find your first customers, and then figure out how to grow. And that's the key to it. Okay. Well, Jeff, thanks so much. I look forward to our little sandwich deal flow meetings again. Um, Thanks for sharing uh, today's wisdom. Great, Andrew, thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. Okay, talk to you soon. Bye for now.